got a note this week from someone in the church who's uh, had a conversation with their three-year-old daughter, and they wanted to pass it along to me. It was Monday, and they were having they were talking, and the little girl said, "Dad, is it still Easter?" And he said, "No, honey, that was yesterday. It's over." She thought a moment and said inquisitively, "Well, is Jesus still alive?" And he sent that to me, and my first thought was, I think a lot of us view Easter like that. It is one day in the year, we celebrate the resurrection, and then we move on to something else. The church fathers understood that that was something we would wrestle with, and and, and recognize that we have a tendency to think of Easter as the end of a season, when in reality, it's the beginning of a season. And in some sense, it does, it is the, the, the culmination of Lent, but actually it is the catalyst for the next 50 days as we celebrate the season of Easter. And the reason for that emphasis is because we are resurrection people. The people of God are, are people who have connected themselves to the resurrected Christ. And the, and the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. That's why the church fathers said, not only do we have this season of Easter, but every Sunday of the year should be celebrated as a mini Easter. That day when we commemorate the resurrection of our Lord one more time. Because it is so central to what it means to be Christian. What it means to be a follower of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament, the whole New Testament in a sense is trying to help us understand what it means to embrace the resurrection and to be resurrection people and to live in the spirit of Easter. And you can make your way through virtually every part of the New Testament and you will find uh, words from the authors to help us be the people we've been called to be. And one of the places that we see that and the place where I'd like for us to, to focus for the next few weeks is Second Peter. Second Peter is written uh, to an audience that uh, is unknown to us. It seems as you read the letter that these are people who Peter knows pretty well and he feels strongly about his relationship with them. It may be the same people that he writes First Peter to, but we don't, we don't know. We do get a sense as you read the letter that Peter senses his death is imminent. His execution is coming soon. And before that happens, he has one more word to send to these folks that he loves. He's concerned about them because they are being pressured from the external culture, the world. It's it's got its tentacles around them and it's squeezing them. And he's worried that they're going to give in to that pressure. But more than that, he's worried about the internal pressure being placed on them. There, There are some folks in this group of people who have arisen and are promoting heresy. And we don't know exactly what it is, but it seems that it is the first rumblings of what later becomes known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge. And there are many facets to this heresy, and you can see it in in a variety of ways as you read the scriptures, as as the bits and pieces of it are poking its head out. But, But one of the things about this is that that the people who believe in this heresy believe that 
relationship with God, and particularly intimacy with God, comes only to those who have discovered the secret. To those who have gained enough knowledge and have gained the right knowledge that they can unlock the door. And it's as though those people have the password to the kingdom. And they are able to walk up to the door, say the password, and the door is open. And the rest of us are on our own. Now these leaders come into the churches and they promote themselves as being uh, more enlightened than the rest of the congregation. More spiritual, more deep. But their theology always leads away from Christ, not to Christ. It leads away from true faith to false belief. And Peter is concerned that the people are buying into this. He's concerned that they have come to the place of thinking that as followers of Christ, as people of the resurrection, mediocrity is okay. That it doesn't matter how you live. That God doesn't really care that much. He doesn't have great plans for his children. Just go about your life and do what you can. And Peter says emphatically, that is not true. God has great plans for his people. His plans for for his people are far greater than any of us can imagine. When you look at it, just beginning here at verse 4, he talks about, though these have, have, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You get down to the end of verse 10. If you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can actually participate in the divine nature of God. And he doesn't mean by that that we're going to be gods. But we're connected to him. We have an intimacy with God. This is what God desires for us. More than just mediocrity. We're resurrection people. And we ought to be living in victory and power and the grace of God. When we eventually get to the end of our days and we have, and we have had the power to live off the fighting of the, of the culture and the evil one against us. And we get to the end of our days, we're going to be welcomed with open arms into the eternal kingdom. And when he says you will not fall, I don't think he means you won't sin anymore while you're in this world. I think he means you can stand strong all the way to the end and not give up on Christ. Peter says that this this promise is for those who are called. In verse 10, he talks about... Those who have been elected, the elect. And the minute those words come into the conversation, you have a theological argument that quickly arises, right? Sovereignty of God, free will of human beings, predestination, you you have all these discussions. I don't really think that's at the heart of what Peter's talking about. And there are people who are much smarter than I am who have differing opinions than I do. But in my mind, I think that the focus Peter's trying to make here is that... Every person God has created, he has called to live in his grace and his blessing. Now, not everyone responds to that call. Many people reject God and they reject his plans for them. But God's yearning, God's desires, God's plans and purpose for every human being is to live in the fullness of his spirit. That's his calling on our lives. That's his desire for each one of us. 
And if we have responded positively and engaged in that, we can come to know God. We can even, as Peter says in in verse 3, we can be holy like Christ. We can live above mediocrity. We can live in power and victory. Not because of us, but because of Him in us. Because of God's grace that has been given to us. It all begins with grace. It is all about God's grace. Anything good in us, any right decision we might ever make, is because God has given us the grace to do it and to make it. It is all about God's grace. But the scriptures are continually reminding us that there is an obligation about how we respond to God's grace. And Peter emphatically makes this statement. He says in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. One translation says, make every effort to confirm your calling. Now, when I think about make every effort, what comes to my mind is is giving everything that we have to accomplishing a task. This This is what we want from uh, if we have if we're sick and no, and we don't know what the problem is, this is the attitude we want from our doctor, right? I mean, we don't want to go to our doctor and they say, "Well, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. Just go home and deal with it." No, we want a doctor that says, "I don't know exactly what's wrong with you, but we will run every test imaginable. I will send you to any specialist I can find. We are going to get. We'll try treatments and therapies and medications. We're going to get to the bottom of this." That's the kind of doctor we want, who makes every effort to help us. And that's the only way we're able able to accomplish anything, is if we make every effort to do so. And it doesn't matter what you're talking about. If, If you really want to lose weight, you make every effort to do that. Stay away from the dessert table or whatever. If you really want to get in shape, then you make every effort to do that. And you go to the gym and you work out. If you want to learn French, you make every effort to immerse yourself in whatever it takes to get French into your mind and out of your mouth. If you want to learn to play the saxophone, you make every effort. And what is it that that motivates us to make every effort? It's something we care about. It's important to us. If it's important to us, we are far more likely to make an effort to do it. And that means if it's important to us, we're willing to to sacrifice. We're willing to give up some things that we might want to do because we know that the only way we can really accomplish this is if we don't do that. And that's hard for us. It really comes back to, is it something that's important? Is it something we really want to do? I grew up in a family where we didn't have weapons around. We didn't have guns, any of those things. I mean, I guess it depends on what you call some of the things my sister used on me. If you wanted to call those weapons, that would be different. But that's a whole other discussion. You know, we didn't have weapons in our home. And I was thinking about my family. And I, for a long time, I didn't know of anyone in my family that owned a gun. Anyone that I knew. An extended family. I have a cousin now who has one of the largest buck knife collections in all of the Midwest and the Eastern Seaboard. So I'm guessing he might have some guns, but I don't know. I'm just putting that, those two things together. 
He's got a thousand knives. Maybe he's got a couple of shotguns lying around too. But so, you know, this is my background. Grew up in the city, didn't know anything about guns. The first church we served out of seminary was in southwest Wisconsin. In, it was such a rural place that makes Houghton look like a metropolis. You had to drive 12 miles to get to anything that you wanted to buy. The only thing closer was a meat processing plant. And there were two things that you could almost always guarantee about people that lived in that part of, of Wisconsin. One is that they were probably connected to the dairy industry in some form. Either they milked cows, they drove a milk truck, or they worked at Wisconsin dairies in town, or they retired from one of those jobs. There were a few others, but m- the majority of people. And the second thing was that they went deer hunting. Deer hunting season in Wisconsin is only nine days, and it's intense, really intense. So, you know, I get to this church. We started in August. By the time November rolls around, it starts the Saturday before Thanksgiving. The guys are saying, you got to go deer hunting with us. you got to go deer hunting with us. I'm thinking, how can I talk them out of this? But I couldn't think of a good reason. I thought, okay, I'll go. It's your, your life at the stake. You know, I mean, the, this end of the gun isn't going to hurt me like that end might hurt you. So we get out there early in the morning, probably 6 o'clock, you know, as, as it's breaking dawn. And they position me near this little cabin to say, you just wait here. The deer come by here all the time. Fine, okay. So for the next four or five hours, I probably saw 20, 30, 40 deer. And I shot at all of them. I'm not even sure I hit a tree, much less a deer. And I decided as uh, this morning is going on and I'm missing and missing and missing. First of all, I thought, I'm not sure what I'd do if I hit, if I shot a deer, I'd probably cry. But, uh, (laughs) but I decided in that moment that if you want to hunt deer, you really need to know how to shoot a gun. Uh, that's kind of basic level, right? And if you want to learn how to shoot a gun, you need to practice shooting a gun. And if you're going to practice, you probably ought to own your own gun and then spend time out on the shooting range. And I decided I didn't really like deer hunting that much. And I didn't ever hunt again. And I think sometimes in the church we have that mindset about our relationship with Christ. Is that it, it's, it's nice, I like hanging out with people, but I'm not that serious about it. It's not that important to me. There are other things that are important to me, but that's not all that important to me. And we have a tendency to let it go. And we don't make every effort because it's not important to us. And Peter is saying, but if you want to know the blessing of God in your life, if you really want to be resurrection people, you got to make this effort. You have to invest yourself. It has to be a passion in your life. That's the only way you're going to get to where you want to be. And yes, it starts with God's grace, but he expects us to respond to that and invest ourselves and cooperate with him in the process of growing. And it's not just confirm your calling in a general sense. It's not just make every effort sort of nebulously. He says in verse, beginning in verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And he talks about possessing these qualities in increasing measure. And when you do, then you have knowledge that allows you to be productive and effective. If you want to live a productive, effective life for God, if you want to have, if you want to have a bearing on the world, if you want to have, make any kind of difference in the kingdom of God then you have to make every effort to bring these characteristics into your life. 
And again, they start with God. But we have to want them. We have to want God to plant those in us. It's not a coincidence that he starts with faith and ends with love. Faith is the foundation for our relationship with Christ. At some point, we come to trust Christ that his way is better than not going his way. And often, we just want to sit there. Now, for a lot of people, we talk about, you know, we, if we could just love more. And you hear that from not just Christians, but all over the world. And loving is better than hating. But love without Christ, as Joey mentioned from Francis Chan, is, is empty. It's always going to fall short. What we're looking for is love that is rooted in the faith that we have in Christ in us. I think often our issue is not that we're trying to love without faith. But I think often our issue is we're trying to have faith and not all that interested in going any further. We have this image in our minds that we want to, we want to step inside the door. I mean, we want to be in the kingdom. The consequences of that are not good. But we want to be in the kingdom, but we want to hang out as close to the door as we possibly can. Because honestly, we kind of like this stuff over here. We like the things of this world, and, and those things are a real passion for us. And we're here because we feel like we have to be, but we're not really making every effort. And you know you're making every effort. You know something is happening when your desire is to keep moving further and further away from the door toward Christ. So that faith results in love. I mean, it's not surprising that love is the end. Love is Jesus. Jesus is love. He says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything the scriptures teach us Hang on those two commandments. Love. And God is calling us to invest ourselves and to be passionate about more than just mediocrity. Because he wants to do so much more in us than we can even visualize. But we limit his work in us because we're passionate about other things instead of about him. I think God knows our struggle. He he understands uh, the difficulties. And and I don't think we we struggle intentionally. I don't think we, we, as as someone I read recently said, when we get up in the morning, I don't think we, we, we think to ourselves, how can I avoid growing spiritually today? You know, I, I don't think we say to ourselves, how can I distance myself from anything that might help me be more like Jesus today? But... We just get so involved in the world, so involved in life, good things, important things. But they become more important than the most important things. And the activity and the busyness and the demands, all of a sudden we realize we're totally entwined in the ideas and the strivings and the yearnings of this world. And Peter says, part of our problem, maybe the heart of the problem is we're nearsighted. We're blind. We've forgotten all the things God has done because we're so focused on what's right here. 
When I, when I read him talking about being nearsighted, I resonate with that because I am nearsighted. When I take my glasses off, I can't even see the big E at the chart at the doctor's office. I, I cannot distinguish any of your faces right now, even here in front. If I didn't know that was Paul and Debbie sitting there, I wouldn't be able to tell you that was Paul and Debbie sitting there. I, I, can't, I can't read the words on the screen. I, if I were outside, I probably couldn't tell the difference between... A deer and a frog. You know, I, I, I just cannot see. But I can see up close. And, and often I will, when I'm reading, I'll take my glasses off because it just feels a little less strained. And, and I read. Now, the book's got to be kind of close, but, but, you know, I can read. But when I'm reading and that book is in front of my face, I'm oblivious to everything else going on around me, everything else going around outside. Because I can't see. And my focus is right here. And spiritually, many of us are just short-sighted, nearsighted. And our focus is so much on what's right in front of us, on, on making sure that we are gaining what we want from this world. And we're missing all the things that God is doing around us and all the things God wants to do for us and through us. We've forgotten who God is. We've forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. We've forgotten that we are redeemed people and that we are resurrection people because our focus has become so narrow and so tight and so close. Christopher Hall in his his book, Worshiping with the Church Fathers, says that it's kind of a sobering thing to realize that from the patristic viewpoint... What they consider spiritual sickness looks an awful lot like what we call normal human life. Hectic, frenetic, self-absorbed. And we don't do it intentionally, but we forget. And we get our vision so close, we miss what God is doing. A while back, someone gave me an article that was um, written by Fred Karpov, who's a professor of piano and ensemble at Syracuse University. The title of the article is Renting Versus Owning. It's, it's a short article, but very fascinating. He said what, what triggered this for him was he went to the National Conference on Piano Pedagogy. And the presenter was talking about how people come to him all the time and say, I used to play the piano. I used to play the piano. And he says, I interpret that as I was a renter. And he says, what, what, I'm, what I want for you to do is to go back to your students and to try to make the piano something they own rather than rent. And Karpov says that, talks about his 15-year-old daughter who went to a four-week camp where they, were, they had to play the piano three hours a day. He said he and his wife were a little concerned because they barely could get her to play 20 minutes a day. But while she was there during those four weeks, something changed in her. And after, when the camp was over, they went to the conference and, and uh, he was one of the presenters and the family came to hear one of his presentations. And afterwards, as often happens, he was up front gathering materials. People were talking with him, having some conversation. And soon the room cleared out and he heard the strains 
of one of Debussy's pieces coming from an adjoining room. And, and as he made his way over, he sort of looked into the room and he noticed a young lady all by herself practicing that piece. And it was his daughter. And he said, everything changed in our home from that point on. Because now we were negotiating and fighting about who got to play the piano. So they had to schedule these things because she always wanted to take my practice time. And she, we, our conversations changed. She'd come to me and say, Dad, do you think I could play that, that Rachmaninoff prelude like my friend played at camp? And he said, what's amazing is that not only is she learning to play classical music, she's developing her whole repertoire and understanding of music in general. And she's playing show tunes and, and pop music, and she's doing it from ear as well as lead sheets. And he said, actually, she's better at it than I am. And he says, you know, if, he said, it's early yet. But I'm, I'm sensing that she's beginning to make a down payment on ownership. And he says, you know, for those of us who love the piano, at some point in time, we make the transition from being renters to owners. It begins with just a little spark of, I think that's something I'd like to do. And as it begins to get into you and as it, as it begins to become a passion for you, you linger at the piano just a little bit longer. And you find yourself looking for another moment where you can go through that piece one more time. And, and, and the spark begins to take, begins to, to flame. And he says, no, you can't always explain it. And, and, and you can't always see it. But you realize that for people who love the piano, it becomes a part of us. And we're no longer renters. As we think about our journey with Christ, think about our passions, our yearnings, our our thoughts. Are we renters or owners? Are making every effort to take the grace that God has given us and to let Him make us more and more every day resurrection people? one of the most important decisions any of us will ever make. Let's pray. Father, you know that too often we, we settle for being spiritual renters. We hear your call to be so much more. And to live 
in your peace and joy and contentment and strength and love. Father, show us this day and every day how we might make every effort to take the grace you've given us to open our lives to let you create us as you intended us to be. We pray this through our risen Lord. Amen.